this reality that I started a ministry called Her God Speaks. Just amazing, amazing when you think about that. But beyond that, I want you to think about the nature of communication and how it has to be done in a particular language. Like, you got to pick one, (laughs) all right? A particular place and at a particular time. And that language, place, and time has a significant bearing on what is being communicated. Now, I have a little experiment to try to help illustrate this. Nobody puts baby in the corner. All right. Now, those English words that make up that sentence are very basic. All right. We could easily, using a dictionary, discern what the individual words mean. All right, so we know what nobody is. We know what it means to put something somewhere. Uh, We know what a baby is. And we also have an understanding of what a corner is. And we could even, using some dictionaries and other resources, we could determine all the variations in the ways that those words are commonly used. But a word study, even a thorough examination of every one of those words in that sentence would not reveal the significance or the meaning of that sentence. That requires watching the movie Dirty Dancing, right? Now, if I were to take a time machine and I were to go 100 years in the future and I were to, in conversation, say, nobody puts baby in the corner, they would probably be really puzzled. Why would you put a baby in a corner in the first place? I don't even see a baby. Why, you know, like it would just be completely lost on them unless, unless they did the work to immerse themselves in late 1980s American pop culture, which is quite a journey. And then when they finally came across this hit movie, Dirty Dancing, and they watched it, a light bulb would come off and they'd be like, oh, that's what it means. She's actually not talking about a literal baby at all, right? But you've got to have the context because that line is a form of communication, right? The Bible is the same way. It's fundamentally an act of communication and all communication is by nature contextualized in a particular language, to a particular people, in a particular place, at a particular time. And this leads us to our next foundational assumption, and that is the fact that the Bible was written for us. I don't want to in any way diminish that reality. The Bible was written for every person in every generation in every part of the world. So the Bible was written for us, but it was not originally written to us. So before we can answer the question, what does it mean? We first have to answer the question, what did it mean? And here's so important for good, sound Bible interpretation. Something in the Bible cannot, cannot mean something for us that it would never have meant for the original audience. Now, we might have a lot more information due to the progressive nature of Revelation. 
For instance, we know more about the Messiah than Moses did, uh, but the idea of a Messiah was not foreign to any of the biblical authors. Same thing with the Holy Spirit. More has been revealed about the Holy Spirit. We have the whole canon of Scripture. But the Holy Spirit would not be a foreign concept to any of the biblical authors. Um, so there's, there's, there's nothing. I mean, you just go through all of the, the, the major tenets of the faith. There is nothing in sound Christian doctrine that doesn't have some kind of connection, some kind of correlation to the original message delivered to the original audience. And this is why, you know, we're studying heaven, so we're getting into the realm of end times and biblical eschatology. And it's really important that we know and recognize that we ought to be highly skeptical of any Bible prophecy gurus who take the symbols from the book of Revelation and identify them with things that are exclusive to our modern world, like barcodes or the COVID vaccine or a particular American president. That is sloppy, garbage interpretation. Gets a lot of clicks. It sells a lot of books. It fills up a lot of conferences. But it completely neglects what the Bible actually is. So important because people are led so astray by these woo-woo ideas. And listen, if, if the authors of Scripture would be like, what in the heck are you talking about? You ought to be really skeptical of, of that particular correlation. All right? Next on our list, a simple read-through of the Bible. And I'm just talking about you're just sitting in your room, you open your Bible, you start reading it. All right? Simple read-through of the Bible reveals all of the macro-level truths that we need to know to faithfully follow Jesus. And that is such good news. What a relief, right? So you don't ever need to own a commentary don't ever need to go to an in-depth Bible study. You don't ever need to own a study Bible. You don't ever need to do a Greek or Hebrew word study in your whole entire life. All you do is read the Bible in an English translation, and you can see all the beautiful, life-changing, macro-level truths that you need to see and know to faithfully follow Jesus, Okay? But if we want to accurately interpret each passage and plunge the micro-level depths of the Bible, which any of you have been studying the Bible for quite some time, you know it just goes deeper and deeper and deeper. It is a deep, deep well, right? If we want to plunge those depths, we have to do the work of learning both the literary and the the historical context. Now, I think most of us, I mean, we're at Bible study, and a lot of you have been at this for many, many years. So a lot of you have done BSF. You've done precepts. You've, I mean, you've done the, like, hardcore stuff, right? So a lot of us are very familiar with the importance of literary context. We know that you don't ever want to just read a Bible verse, right? You want to read it in the chapter it's in. You want to read the whole chapter, and then you want to get familiar with the whole book of the Bible that it's in. And then you kind of stand back and you're like, okay, well, how does that book of the Bible fit in the larger story of the Bible? Um, and this whole concept is the foundation of any inductive Bible study method. Now, conservative American evangelicals like us 
love inductive verse-by-verse Bible study. Literary context is our jam. Give me a word study. We will go to town. I will tell you every verse in the Bible where you find that word, right? We love literary context. We are obsessed with literary context, and that's so good because, man, I hate a verse taken out of context. Oh, my word. That's another story, all right? However, we tend to be highly skeptical of using resources outside of the Bible to better understand the Bible's historical context. For instance, it is common knowledge among scholars that the proper interpretation of Genesis 1 necessitates an understanding of the literature of Israel's neighbors. Like, it's not optional. Like, you, you have to have some understanding. Because the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of which Israel was in conversation with, right? They all had their own creation narratives. And those can help us better understand how the people of the ancient Near East lived and how they thought and how they viewed the world. It can help us understand their literary context. Now, the coolest thing, if you think about it, I think about until about, I think, 150 years ago, most of those texts were buried under the sands of the Middle East. And as they have been unearthed by archaeologists, they have led to major advances in biblical studies that we should not be afraid of. Sometimes I get, the, or I get the idea that, well, biblical studies is a static discipline. It never changes. The Bible is old. We don't have to learn anything new. Wrong. Not only are new texts being unearthed, we have AI, artificial intelligence, databases, I mean, now a scholar can search a word not just in the Bible, but in every ancient text in a certain time period. I mean, come on, you guys. Every text that's ever been found. And so this is exciting that we can get better. We can get better at understanding, but we're not going to get better if every time we see somebody reference um, the Enuma Elish or one of the Egyptian creation, we're like, oh, no, 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 that's not Bible. Now, sometimes people can use those to discount and discredit the authority of the Bible, but in the hands of a scholar with a high view of Scripture, it is gold. It is gold. So good. Um, And so now you might be thinking, so you sit and read those texts? No, I tried once. It is, no, it is, I can't do it. I can't do it. But I am now at the point where, unless I'm reading for just a nice devotional purpose, um, if a commentary, particularly on the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, if it is not routinely referring to ancient sources outside of the Bible, I pass because I don't have any confidence that that scholar has done the hard work of being a good tourist of that text. Um, It's also important to note, and I love me some John Calvin and Luther and Spurgeon and all these guys that were writing in the Reformation and even before that, early church fathers, but they didn't have a lot of this stuff. And so just because it's older doesn't mean it's 
better. Just because it's newer doesn't mean it's better. So we just need to be careful interpreters, all right? Now, I want to hash all this out by taking a look at Genesis 1, verse 6. All right, we'll look at more than just this verse, but this is where we're going to start. Genesis 1, verse 6. says, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating the water from water. And so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. And he called the expanse sky. Evening came and morning the second day. All right, so I have the CSB. It, it translates the word expanse. King James Version was firmament. Uh, I think the NIV says vault. Another translation says canopy. Um, the Hebrew word means, and this isn't even like any Hebrew dictionary you'll get, it means a beaten metal plate. It's a term from a like blacksmith. So in the mind of the author, this is not atmosphere. We think of sky, we think of atmosphere, right? No, no, no. This is a solid material. Now, why would they, why, why would that appear, why, why would they think that? Well, if you go out in, uh, in, in a wide open field and you, and you look up, and then you look that way and you kind of scan the horizon, I mean, it looks like there's this giant blue dome, right? It will even have kind of a dome-like shape. Now, why is it blue? Well... There must be water up there. Not only does the verse say that, but sometimes little tiny windows in that solid sky dome open up and water comes out. We call that rain. <laughs> now, if you've uh, ever, you know, noticed when you dig into the earth, you dig and you dig and dig, you're eventually going to hit some water. So the earth, which appears to be flat, we're not falling over, Right? Uh, it, it, it must be floating on top of more water. In fact, the verse says he separated the waters above from the waters below. Now, how does the earth not sink into the waters under it? Well, it must be held up by pillars. And what I'm describing to you is the ancient Hebrew conception of the universe. If you read Psalm 104, you'll see almost all of those things I just mentioned. Uh, Job has a lot of the references, like the pillars and the, all the things, right? And I have a picture of that on your listening guide there, all right, if you wanted to get, like, the whole view. So we've got a, a disc. Earth is a disc. It's sitting on the waters below. It is got this big sky dome, solid sky dome, and um, there's waters above that. And then, of course, this has some other things placed in there as well. Um, the throne of God, if you read through the Psalms. Right? In a lot of passages, you went to some of them this week. The throne of God sits above the sky dome. Right? So that was the ancient Hebrew conception because that, from the viewpoint of just basic observation, that is exactly how the earth appears to be. Right? Does this mean that the Bible is wrong? Does this mean that the Bible contains errors? There is no sky dome, you guys. There is no firmament. No. 
The Bible is not wrong. It does not contain errors. This means that the Bible is an act of communication, and communication is always, without exception, contextualized. A pre-scientific account of the physical world is perfectly okay because the Bible is a theological book. It is not a science manual. And that is why God never saw fit later on in Scripture to correct this. This wasn't, it's not a big deal. Like, it's not what the Bible's about. To treat it as a science manual, opinion moment, to treat it as a science manual, in my opinion, is akin to rolling up to the Taj Mahal and cutoffs in a tank top. And if you're really going to be hardcore, I'm going to take every word of this literally, then you need to find a flat earth community. I mean, let's just be real. Their conception of earth was not round. Right? One illustration uh, to help drive this home, and this is by John Walton. And by the way, some books that can, can, I'm just going to hit the treetops. You want to go deeper. Uh, Walton's book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. He's a scholar. This is his popular level book for like normal people like us who don't know all the, we can't read Hebrew or or anything like that. So The Lost World of Genesis 1, John Walton. Um, In the beginning, we misunderstood Johnny Miller and John Soden, S-O-D-E-N. And then this is also a phenomenal book. It extends further than what we're talking about, but it's called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. Making sense of the anti women, anti science, pro violence, pro slavery, and other crazy sounding parts of scripture. We're actually going through this with my 13 year old. Maybe you've noticed the younger generation has a pretty um, highly tuned BS radar. Um, I don't know about you, when I grew up, I'd sit in church, and if my pastor or youth pastor said it, I was like, yeah, it must be true. You know, it's basically like God said it. These days, they're like, nah, check that on the internet. You wrong, right? Like, and so we're trying to get ahead of some of these questions and not just give our son, like, dumb answers. <laughs> Let's wrestle with some of these things. This is a phenomenal, phenomenal resource for that. So highly recommend. All right. Um, okay, so back to my illustration. I've got two backpacks, okay? They're both labeled creation. This one is uh, the backpack we would wear, all right, creation from a modern, what we would think of, we think of creation. And this is a backpack that our good friend Moses, who wrote Genesis, would wear, all right, ancient, the ancient uh, Israelite, the ancient thinker. All right, so um, let's see, we'll go through, we'll go through our backpack first, all right. I've got some goodies in here. They're not very exciting goodies. I didn't have time to make it cute. I should have called Amy. She could have made it cute for me. <laughs> All right. So first thing in our backpack, the way we, we think about creation, these are things that we are really important to us. Uh, matter determines existence, right? So something exists if it has some kind of material composition. It's got atoms, molecules, something. You can measure it. You can weigh it, observe it. Right? So that's what we think of when we think of something existing. Uh, another thing in our backpack is the idea that origin and science go hand in hand. We have just absolutely no concept of having a conversation about origins 
and it not be a scientific conversation. It just always is, right? Uh, another thing in our backpack is that creation is about the how and the what. So we care about the mechanics. How did it come to be? I want dates. I want processes. I want a material list. I want all the things. I want the mechanics of how it all happened. And then another thing in our backpack is a sharp divide between the natural and the supernatural. And this is why we're so interested in miracles. What is a miracle? It's the suspension of the natural order. I would be happy to. It's, uh, it's the suspension of the natural order so that we can see God do something only, we say this, our words, only God could do, right? So we have a very intense distinction in our minds between the natural and the supernatural, all right? We are, um, most of us, I know, well, I'll speak for myself, a little bit uncomfortable when people start talking about angels, a little uncomfortable when people start talking about demons, a little uncomfortable when the Holy Spirit gets a little too up in our services. You know, that's just me from my, like, faith background, okay? Because there's a very sharp divide between the natural and the supernatural. All right, well, let's look at our friend Moses's backpack and compare and contrast. All right, let's see. Wrong container. All right, so for the ancient thinker, function determines existence. So something exists if it's ordered if it works. And this is why the the story told in Genesis 1, it doesn't start with nothingness. Have you ever noticed that? It starts with these chaos waters that the Spirit is is hovering above because to the ancient mind, that is what communicated non-existence. There was no order. There was no life-sustaining function. So there could have been something there, but, but humans couldn't live on it. And, and, and so in their mind, it didn't exist, right? So that is, is one big difference. We think material, they think order. Um, okay, again, origins and ordering go hand in hand. They don't need the material, they don't need the how. And the, it starts when it works. It starts when it works, all right? So that was how the ancient mind would have thought of origins. And then creation for us is about the the how and the what. For the ancient, it's about the who and the why. All right? They were not overly concerned with the mechanics. They were more concerned with the identity and, and the agent that brought it all into being. All right? So who who did it? And why? What's the purpose of all of this, right? So the ancient thinker cared much more about that. And lastly, no such thing as natural. Everything is supernatural. So they would not have made a big deal about miracles because when everything is a miracle, a miracle is not a big deal, right? Like to the ancient mind, the gods were behind everything. Rain, your little plant grows or your, the wind blows or like everything, everything was related to the supernatural. So they didn't have the natural-supernatural divide. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, if we are unable to take off our backpack when we approach 
Genesis 1 and 2, we will continue to make Genesis 1 and 2 all about science and the origins debate, when in reality, it is so much bigger than that. I would guess that most of us, if not all in this room, have never heard that Genesis 1 and 2 is a temple text. And when this lesson is over, you're going to think to yourself, I have been in church my whole entire life, and I have never heard this before. And that is because most pastors and Bible teachers are traveling through these passages wearing the wrong backpack. We are reading our modern post-enlightenment assumptions into this ancient text, and it has blinded us to the bigger, gorgeous story that God is telling. All right? One more illustration to help drive this home. I want to be really careful. All right? This is kind of very new. It's new for me. I'm I'm assuming it's new for you. I want to make sure we comprehend what I'm saying or I'm not saying. All right? One more illustration to help us better understand the perspective of the original audience. This one is also from John Walton. I want you to consider the creation of a house. I say, I'm going to create a house, right? We probably think in terms of, all right, well, you've got to secure a lot. You've got to do all the groundwork, all the underground stuff, that ha- the site work that has to be done. Um, and you're going to pour the foundation. There's going to be framing, siding, roof, drywall. There's all the fixtures, lots of materials, highly technical, right? Mechanics. Now, consider... If I were to say, I want to create a home, it's different, isn't it? Right? So it's not, it's not about materials anymore. It's not about the floor plan. It's not about the building codes. Creating a home is about establishing function and order. It's about determining where's the furniture going to go. Um, who gets what room? Well, that's going to be Shepherd's room. That's going to be Landon's room. That's going to be Mom and Dad's room, right? Um, You know, making a home is about, like, what rhythms are we going to put in place to make the home run efficiently, to make it a refuge where a family can flourish and thrive? So we all know the difference between creating a house and creating a home. They're both creative activities. When we, as modern post-enlightenment people, tell creation stories, we want a house story. We want the science. When the ancients told creation stories, they told home stories. They valued order and function above all things. And I tell you what, understanding this has been so, so helpful for me. These chapters, I'm going to be honest with you, and I've kind of like kept this on the down low my whole life. They have bothered me. They have been a source of angst for me. Um, I don't care what you say, and I've listened to all of the science people, the young earth creationist people, even old earth creationist people, and it, these, this chapter, particularly chapter, it does not square that well with science. It just doesn't. Let's just be honest. Let's just be honest. It, does, it doesn't. Um, and even if it did, like Genesis 1 and 2 don't even square well with each other. Have you noticed? They're like, way different. People say, well, Genesis 2 goes in day 6. Yeah, you try to make that work. 
you got to like be hush-hush about some really, really, really blaring discrepancies between the two. What a relief when I finally put on the other backpack and I started to understand the purpose of these chapters. I started to understand like, okay, so Moses taught totally different about these things than I do. And the purpose of this, these chapters is to convey God's purpose for creation. All right? So in a room this size, there should be several different views on the science of origins. There just should be. If we all have the same view, we got a problem. Because the, the Bible does not explicitly say how old the earth is or how it went down. It just doesn't. And so we can be in fellowship with young earth people and old earth people and everything in, the, every, everything in between. The only thing we cannot do is accept any view that eliminates God from the picture, right? That's, that's, that is in violation of the scriptures, but that's like kind of it, right? I don't know about it, this is like a huge relief for me. And some of you mamas in this room, you're going to have kids come home from college and tell you that they're like, this young earth stuff is like, uh-uh. And you do not have to freak out. What a relief. What a relief. <laughs> I know this is new. Some of you are like, you're really uncomfortable right now, but I promise you, let it sink in. And you don't have to agree with me. Again, you don't. Um, but I do think this is a more faithful interpretation of what's going on. All right. So what is going on? What is the purpose for creation? What is God's plan A? Well, let's take a look. Uh, First thing on your listening guide, if you flip it over, God's plan A involves an earthly kingdom. And we're going to make a statement. I'm going to keep building on it every point. An earthly kingdom. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, this is arguably the most important verse in the entire Bible because it establishes God as the primary subject. It communicates in no uncertain terms that he is the creator and sustainer of all that is. And that this place we call earth ultimately belongs to him. He is the king. The entire cosmos is his domain. And notice that the realm in view is the place where humanity dwells. Now, is God the sovereign king beyond that realm? Absolutely. But the primary focus of the Bible is an earthly kingdom inhabited by humans. All right? So we have an earthly kingdom. We build on that sentence. It's an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers. All right? So verses 2 to 25 of chapter 1, in those verses, God orders the world so that it is fit for human life. In fact, everything he does in those verses is for the express purpose of human flourishing, which is so unique when compared to other creation stories in the ancient world. I'm quoting from John Walton here. He says, whereas the rest of the ancient world, um, uh, in the rest of the ancient world, creation was set up to serve the gods, a theocentric view. In Genesis, creation is not set up for the benefit of God, but for the benefit of humanity. God doesn't need time. He doesn't need weather. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need any of this stuff, right? But we do. 
Um, And so we have an anthropocentric view. Thus, we can say that humanity is the climax of the creation account. In fact, a good many Hebrew scholars argue that the phrase, and it was very good, does not mean that it was perfect. It means that the creation, quoting here from another scholar, Michael Heiser, the creation was fit for human habitation and the perpetuation and survival of Earth's creatures. In other words, the world was perfectly ordered for humans to flourish and fulfill the mission that God had given them. And that's why it's at the end of this that God says it was very good. Very good. Now, what was that mission? Well, we have it there in chapter 1, verse 26. Take a look at that with me. These are so important. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. All right, we'll stop there. Now, if we are looking for repeated words, which we always should be, right, uh, there are the ones that stand out in this particular passage are image and rule. Now, not coincidentally, those two things go hand in hand. Now, there has been so much written about uh, what it means to be made in the image of God. Uh, I think the one that best honors the text and the, 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 the context, the historical context of what's going on in Genesis 1 is the royal view. Um, I gave you a little snippet of this in your homework this week, but I want to read a little more. This is another, you should put this on your Christmas list, it's pricey big, um, but it's Michael Bird's Evangelical Theology. It's a systematic theology, so it's going to categorize topics, theology topics, and then it's going to write about them. So you better believe the first thing I did when I started this study is I looked up heaven, right? And then I looked up hell, and when I was studying this, it was image of God, you know? So all those topics are covered, and then you, you know, it's not the kind of book you read from front to back. I guess some people do. Not me. Not me. All right. So I want to read you, Michael Burgess explains this so well. This is the royal view of image of God. It said, in parts of the ancient Near East, image of God was an exalted title for monarchs. Kings were regarded as sons and servants of the gods and accordingly bore the image as rulers of the earth. We don't think of kings that way. We are sharp, natural, supernatural divide. They did not have that. They did not think that. If you were a king, you were a king because there's something godlike about you, right? Um, in the new kingdom of Egypt, 1500s BC, the Egyptian pharaoh was lauded as being the image of Re, which is the sun god, an image of Atum, or Atum, A-T-U-M. Uh, the Assyrian king was addressed as the, quote, image of Bel and the image of Marduk. That's in 600s BC. In a papyrus fragment from Egypt during the Potomac period, this is 200s BC, a reference to a monarch as a living image of Zeus, son of the sun. Greek philosopher Plutarch said, now justice is the aim and the end of the law. The law is the work of the ruler, and the ruler is the image of God who orders all things. So if we're taking our cues from the other literature that was around at the time, 
image of God is clearly associated with a royal status. All right, so he says, if we take into account the ancient Near Eastern context in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, is saying that all of humanity is part of God's royal family. They are priest kings of the earth made in order to rule on God's behalf. Whereas the image was often restricted in the ancient Near East to a few monarchs who were worshipped as godlike figures, this is my favorite part, the privilege of bearing God's image was democratized in the biblical narrative so that all of humanity shares in it. Consequently, humanity is the cosmic media for expressing God's sovereignty and presence in the world. God set humanity and his creation as walking billboards of his might and authority. And then he closes with this. He says, the imago Dei is not a quality, a capacity, or reducible to function. It is a sovereignly and divinely bestowed status by which we become royal sons and daughters of our heavenly Lord. It is universally true of every person, irrespective of age, ethnicity, gender, or ableness. This is why I like that view. In every other view, disabled people are not made in the image of God. But if image is status, your ability isn't part of the picture. Out of that royal status, humanity as a whole, not necessarily every individual, uh, but as a whole, they reflect God's goodness and exercise God's reign. People who are disabled share in the royal status, even if they have um, are limited in the ways they can project God's rule over the created order. Humanity is royal in God's sight and is given the important task of ruling and stewarding creation as God's vice regent. This is the imago dei. In this perspective, God is the generous creator who adopts humanity as royal children and invites them to participate in his reign over the world. I know that was long, but it's so good, so rich. Something I've been thinking about, that's a very high view of humanity. It just really is. It's really beautiful, actually, if you think about it. And I think it's a message we need today more than we ever have. I'm throwing this out. This is like April's head, something that's been rolling around in there. I think might be helpful if it's not just like blotted out, whatever. Most gospel presentations begin with wrath and how horrible humans are. Now, please hear me say, God's wrath is indeed something that we need saving from. The thing we need saving from. And indeed, in their fallen state, humans corrupt and pollute God's world in a variety of horrible, terrible ways. But I wonder if maybe, just maybe, we would do well to remember that the Bible doesn't start with the message of how horrible humans are. It starts with the message that humans are made in the image of God and are collectively granted royal status. The Bible begins with the dignity and worth of every person who owes their existence to God, which is every person on the planet that has ever lived without exception. Wrath and sin and depravity, that is all part of the story we must tell about humanity, but it is not the whole story. And maybe 
contrary to how most of us have been trained, it's not the best lead-in to a gospel conversation. I was trained, ingrained in me. You got to let people, you got to help them see how awful they are. Okay, that is part of perhaps the process. Is that the best way to start? I don't even know if it's the most biblical way to start. In fact, the plan of redemption makes absolutely no sense apart from the intrinsic worth of human beings. Not only did God send a human being, he sent that human being to redeem human beings because there's something about us that he just loves. We need to be careful not to so emphasize wrath and sin that we neglect or downplay the high view of humanity that is presented to us in the Bible. And if we aren't careful from a more reformed fundamentalist kind of viewpoint, we can start to see the only worthy people in the world as people who have prayed a sinner's prayer and have their go up to heaven card. And like everybody else who's lost, they can contribute nothing. That is absolutely false. Every human on this planet, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of ability, regardless of of mental cognition, every single human has inherent worth and dignity before God. They're all made in the image of God. And we would do well to emphasize that, particularly today, particularly today in our culture. All right, back to God's place. We have got an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers. Next part. This is so cool. In a cosmic temple. So God's plan A is for an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple. And this is what we see. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed on the seventh day. Uh, On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day, declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. All right, so in every culture, there are things that go without saying, right? Um, Things that everyone in the culture just knows. You don't have to post an explanation. Nobody really talks about it. Uh, Here in America, if you introduce, you're introduced to someone I mean, unless you're like super COVID conscious, I guess. But you, you tend to extend your hand. Like there's kind of the expectation of a handshake is going to come. When you say goodbye to someone here in America, you don't give them a big wet one on the face. You don't kiss them unless they're family or they're a romantic interest. Now, other cultures, you do. It's like the, we are not a kissing culture, all right? Um, we know it goes without saying you drive on the right-hand side of the road. It goes without saying that Chick-fil-A is the best fast food restaurant on the planet. Right? There are just some, some things that you just, you know, nobody has to tell you, you just, you know it to be true. Well, same in the culture of the Bible, right? There, there, were, there were some things that went without saying in the ancient world that need no explanation. And one of those things was the fact that deities rested in temples. Deities rested in temples. So what the author of Genesis is communicating here is way more than a setup for the Sabbath commands that would come later. I'm going to read again what I had written in the introduction to this week because it's so, so important. It's just kind of such a game changer. This again is from John Walton. He says, a reader from the ancient world would know immediately what was going on 
in Genesis 1 and 2 and recognize uh, the role of day seven. Without hesitation, the ancient reader would conclude that this is a temple text and that day seven is the most important of all the seven days. Everyone in the ancient world knew that deity rests in a temple and only in a temple. This is what temples were built for. We might even say that this is what a temple is, a place for divine rest. Perhaps even more significant, in some ancient Near Eastern texts, the construction of a temple is associated with cosmic creation. The role of the temple in the ancient world, it was not a place primarily for people to gather and worship like modern churches. It was a place for the deity, a sacred space. It is his home, but more importantly, his headquarters, his control room. When the deity rests in the temple, it means that he is taking command, that he is mounting to his throne to assume his rightful place and proper role. Where is the temple of God according to Genesis chapter 2? Is it up there or is it down here? It's here. This is an earth story. (laughs) It's here, right? So God takes up, he takes up residence in his temple, which is here on earth. Earth. Also, if you were to walk in a temple in the ancient world, you know there's only one thing you would see in the middle of the temple, and it would be an idol. It would be an image, a representation of that deity, whoever was resting there. God has idols in his temple, imagers, you and me, physical representations of the God of all. That's cool, right? It's just so cool. And that's why God had such a big thing, like, don't make another image. I already got them, (laughs) right? Like, I already got imagers. All right, so moving on. Filling out our statement here. God's plan A, an earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth space called Eden. All right, so if you move on into chapter two, God plants a garden. All right, let me start in verse eight. It says, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed, and the Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of knowledge and good and evil. We're not going to get into the commands of God, but I want you to know that Eden was a yes place. Every tree was a yes tree, except one. I think we get this idea that God makes no places. God is restrictive. God is, no, 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 no. This was a yes place. There was one thing that God said, don't, don't eat from that. Verse 10, a river went out from Eden to water the garden. And from there it divided, became a source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows to the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bdellium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows to the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Do you get the impression that this is just a metaphorical garden? No, there, it has a geography, has a geography to it. 
Uh, and then the Lord took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. We'll stop there. I want to point out a couple of things. One is the tree of life, the tree of life. Now, at the end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are evicted from the garden. And if you look at chapter 3, verse 22, it says this. It says, The Lord God said, Since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. Now, this reveals that immortality, the ability to live forever, is not something humans have on their own. Humans could live forever if and only if they were continually partaking of the fruit of the tree of life, which is a symbol of God's own life-giving, life-sustaining presence. They were to continually feed on God, so to speak, And that is how they would stay alive. And that is why it's said to be at the very center of the garden. That's significant. So if what's in view is a cosmic temple, then the garden in Eden, with the tree of God's life-giving presence at the center, would be the holy of holies. That's That's what's being presented here. Again, totally lost on us. But the people who read this were, like, familiar with the tabernacle, right? Like, they knew about the Holy of Holies. And it's here in this garden that God set up his home and would commune with his human imagers. Genesis 3, 8, we see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You get the sense this was, like, a regular thing. God's on a stroll because this is where he lives, right? And take a look at 2.15 again. It says, the Lord God took the man, placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Now, the Hebrew words translated work and watch over show up side by side again somewhere else. In Numbers 3.8, which describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. Which brings us to our full statement of God's plan A. An earthly kingdom ruled by human imagers in a cosmic temple where God dwells with humans who act as priests in a special heaven and earth place called Eden, which God desires to expand throughout the whole entire world. God's garden is supposed to fill the earth. Now, we can tell from the description of the Garden of Eden that it was geographically confined. So for a long time, I kind of just thought the whole earth was Eden. That's actually not um, what's being laid out here. It has a geographically confined. So the original task of humanity is to expand the garden, heaven and earth space, to make the whole earth like Eden. And they would accomplish this by fulfilling the creation mandate, right? Ruling, subduing, being fruitful, multiplying, obeying God's command. Um, I'm quoting from scholar Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, in his book, Unseen Realm. Um, he says, Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They cared for it, but the rest of the earth needed subduing. It wasn't awful. In fact, Genesis 1 tells us that it was habitable, But it wasn't quite what Eden was. The whole world needs to be like God's home. Now, he could do the job himself, but he chose to create human imagers to do it for him. 
He issued the decree. They were supposed to make it happen. They were to do that by multiplying and following God's direction. Eden is where the idea of the kingdom of God begins. And it is no acts, no coincidence that the Bible ends with the vision of the new Edenic earth, Revelation 21 and 22. And that brings us to the final statement on your listening guide there. In Genesis 3, all right, so that's when the snake, they eat the fruit, they end up outside, evicted from the garden. In Genesis 3, evil impedes, really important, but does not defeat God's original purpose. He would seek out other human imagers to reverse the effects of Adam's rebellion, particularly Abraham and his offspring, the nation of Israel. Like Adam, Israel would utterly fail in her calling to be a kingdom of priests, spreading the goodness and beauty of Eden to the rest of the world. So God would need to send his own divine human imager to do what no other human has ever been able to do, to rule God's kingdom God's way, uniting the goodness and beauty of heaven with earth as God always intended. Through Christ and his bride, the church, Eden realities, what we call new creation, would indeed spread to the ends of the earth. And that is where the Bible takes us. That is the story we are going to be exploring through the rest of our study. And what a beautiful story it is. Beautiful story. All right, that was a lot. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. Dare I open it up for questions? No, I absolutely will. I don't mind questions. Do you guys have any questions right now about what we've walked through? I put my email address at the end of the listening guide again. I didn't get any this week. So I assume you just, I just did such a good job. Just letting you know. Uh, please, please send me any questions that you have. Um, I don't mind being in dialogue with hard questions. Like, I, I'm actually extremely comfortable with people disagreeing with me. Um, like, I don't, you know, I guess it's a fruit of God's spirit in my life. I, like, I'm not needing to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can disagree with me. Send me your questions. Disagree with me. Do it kindly. No questions? All right. Well, you've got a few minutes to... Amy, we need to be done. It's no child care, so... But like 12 or 11.30, is that usually? Okay, 11.20. 11.20. All right. Sounds good. If you think of a question, I'll be back there. All right? You can come out. <laughs>